Hello, everyone. How are you doing? This is Eric with Living on the Edge of Chaos podcast. Today, I have a guest, and I know I always say I'm excited and honored and all those things, and I always am for everybody, but this, this one... Truly, I feel so humbled to have this opportunity to speak to someone who I've never had a chance to have a conversation with, but her work and the work of her team has really, really moved me, um, helped me further craft my philosophy and, and become and continue to grow more passion for the work that I do, even when I feel like I hit roadblock after roadblock sometimes. Um, and the guest that I'm speaking with today is 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 one that is such a treasure that if you don't know of her, I'm so glad you get the opportunity to learn about her and her work. And if you know her, then you already know we're in for a ding-dang delight of a conversation. And I am speaking about none other than Zoe Weil. And and to 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 talk about yourself is not always easy. And I could talk about her her long list of accomplishments, but just some key highlights. And then I'll let her introduce herself um, you know, the way she wants to be introduced. But Zoe's work for me is the, the author of The World Becomes What We Teach. It's a book that's been around since 2016. I have discovered it just in, in recent years. And I wish I had it back in 2016 because it was speaking to the work I was doing. She's also the co-founder and president of the Institute of Humane Education, which we'll talk into uh, here in just a little bit. Um, some of you may have heard of TED Talks. She's got not just one of those, but six of those, at least from what I've counted. And she's got several books, not just one book, that all have various awards. And I know that's not why she does the work for those awards and, and recognition and accomplishments, but to truly create change in the world but just to give some context into the impact and the recognition of her work that she's had um, around the world um, and the work that she's doing and, and the, her passion for campaigning to doing the right thing. So, so that was a really, really long word scramble from my brain. Uh, welcome to the show. So excited to have you and maybe a proper introduction of how you would like to say hello, introduce yourself. Who are you? What do you do? And what in the world do you got going on? Oh, Aaron, thank you so much. Boy, I felt like I was just smiling ear to ear <laughs> as you were talking because having my work impact somebody who's in education, who wants to share it with other people, I mean, that's what I do this for. Um, as as I feel like you gave me such a beautiful introduction, I'm not sure what else there is to say except Maybe I'll introduce myself with this. We live on this miracle of a planet. And everybody listening to this has the miracle of being alive. And when we open our eyes to the wonder that is life and existence and everything around us, the beauty, of the physical planet, this species who reside here with us, and our capacities to love and connect and bring about more beauty and more love and more peace. 
is there anything else that's a greater gift than that? Mm. To actually be alive and to be able to contribute. And I do this work because I love this planet and I, I'm so grateful. And I also do this work because I know that a more just and sustainable and healthy and humane world is possible. And I know it's possible because we have seen more justice and more humaneness and compassion develop over time. And sometimes that can be really, really hard to recognize because we can see all the injustices and we can see the potential catastrophes from climate change and we see inequity and we see cruelty toward other people and other species. And when we're inundated with that, we can think that things are very dark and that is true at the same time as so much has changed for the better. I'm 61 years old. And when I was born, half of all people on earth lived in extreme poverty. That's now about 10%, way too high, but quite different from 50%. When I was born, it was illegal in many states in the United States for black and white people to get married. And then the civil rights act was passed and it has not brought about a racially just society but it's brought about a more racially just society and to me more means we can get to true justice when i was born girls and women didn't really aspire to be more than um, a few professions where there was access and now girls know that they can be anything in the world. And even in countries where girls are still oppressed, most of them go to school. That wasn't true when I was born. So I've seen these changes. And to me, they are a reminder that we have more work to do, but we can get there. That's a really long introduction, but no. that's what I feel like today. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. And I think something that regardless if I'm listening to one of your presentations or reading your work or going on onto the website or going to the resources, whatever it might be, there is always this, this undercurrent of optimism um, and always that there's always work to be done but always reminding ourselves to stay grounded in the progress that has been made. And I think that's something that really, really resonates, especially as we think about moving this work into working with students. And it's not to create fear and anxiety and more of those things, but to help them see the opportunities to be that ripple in the water, so to speak, to create that positive change, to continue to increase um, opportunities and accessibility and equality for all and not just people, but our planet and animals and everything else that, that comes with that. And so I, I want to dive into that, but I want to take one step back as you were talking a little bit about kind of comparing um, from when you were born till now. And and one of the things that, I, that, I, that I'm curious about, like clearly, if you see any of your work, it's your passion for for this work is, is evident. But what's kind of your, your origin story? How did you get to a place where you 
are where you are now, where you've got the Institute for Humane Education and you've got, you've got published work and you've got the talks and you, you do those things. How did you find yourself there? Because I always find that to be fascinating. No one's path is ever linear. Um, I think our interests are always kind of there in some shape or form. Um, and so before we get into maybe some of that work, I'm curious, you just didn't wake up one day and go, oh, here it all is. I mean, it, I'm curious how 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 you were able to find that spark or that that drive to go. This is what I'm gonna I'm I'm really gonna gonna push to work into this this field. That's a great question. Um, my path was quite circuitous. So, um, for anybody who's seen my first TEDx talk, the world uh, becomes what we teach. I start that TEDx talk off by sharing a story about how when I was 15 years old, I asked William Shatner, who played Captain Kirk on the original Star Trek series, to kiss me. And that was in front of 5,000 people at a Star Trek convention. So what does that have to do with my work today? <laughs> um, you got us hooked. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I've had a lot of time to reflect upon why I'd be willing to publicly humiliate myself as a 15-year-old. I mean, most teenagers try really hard not to publicly humiliate themselves, but I went out of my way to do so. Um, and a lot of that is because of how profoundly hopeful the Star Trek series was. And um, for anybody who doesn't know the Star Trek series... Um, which can't be that many people. At this right, point. right. Um, but the, the vision is of a future in which we have solved our earthly problems, our nations are at peace, we're part of a united federation of planets, we're explorers without being conquerors. We really have managed to escape um, the, you know, potential looming catastrophes we feel today. And that vision kept me going when I would feel despair and hopelessness about the world. So how did that lead me to humane education? It didn't directly. That's why I said the path was really circuitous. Um, it shouldn't be a surprise that when I discovered Star Trek when I was 13, I aspired then to be an astronaut or an, at least an astrophysicist. So that was my life goal for a little bit. Um, by the time I graduated from high school, I went to college pre-med. Um, that didn't last very long. I sort of put that on hold when I realized what a slog all those courses were. <laughs> <laughs> so I became an English major. Um, and I ended up, you know, thinking I would, uh, I got a master's degree while I did my bachelor's. And I sort of thought, oh, I'll get a PhD and I'll be a college professor. That that was kind of the job that seemed like I was well suited for that. Um, but um, back then, as now, there weren't very many jobs for English professors. So I thought, well, I don't want to just have to move to the only place I can find a job. I wanted a little more control over my life. So I thought, law school, of course. <laughs> logical step <laughs> so i went to law school i lasted till thanksgiving of the first year dropped out and really was floundering i you know there were things i loved things i was passionate about i was passionate about racial justice and social justice i was passionate about women's rights i was passionate about nature i love nature even though i grew up in manhattan i just the natural world spoke to me um, and I adored animals. And you know, like, how could I put all that together in a career? I really didn't didn't quite 
see it. Mm. Um, and then I got a job as a teacher and naturalist in a nature center, and I really loved it. It was wonderful work. It was also very healing because my father had just passed away, which was a terrible loss. Um, and I, I didn't sort of see how that could morph into really exactly what I wanted to do. And I hadn't let go of that that idea of being a, a professor. So I went off to divinity school to study comparative religions because I, I was fascinated by how people make meaning in their lives. So you can see how circuitous <laughs> this is, right? Like I, I am all over the map. And while I was in graduate school looking for a summer job, I found a program at the University of Pennsylvania that taught week-long courses to middle school students. And because of that circuitous path I'd been on, I knew a little bit about a lot of things. And so I pitched five courses to this summer program and the director said yes to all of them. And one of them was the second most popular of the 60 courses offered that summer. Now this had nothing to do with me. Nobody knew who I was. It was the right. course itself. And it was a course on animal issues. And, you know, cause kids like animals just like I did. So I taught about what was happening to animals in our society, and we explored things that we could do about it. So one day I talked about product testing on animals. That's where everything from oven cleaner and personal care products and shampoo are squeezed into the eyes of conscious rabbits, force-fed to them in quantities mm -hmm. that kill, smear on, smeared onto the abraded skin of animals, all to test these products. So this one 12 year old boy went home that night and he made his own homemade leaflets. Now this was in 1987. He did not have a personal computer. He hand wrote his oh. leaflet. And he came back to class the next morning. He said, can I hand them out? And I said, sure. And he didn't mean to his fellow classmates, they already knew about the issue. He wanted to hand them out on a, on the street in Philadelphia. So while the rest of us were having lunch, he was standing out on a Philadelphia street corner handing out his homemade leaflets. That summer, I realized that uh, this was this could turn into something much bigger. I, I saw the power of what happens when young people, learn about things that they are passionate about and are engaged with making a difference. And this is called humane education. Yes. And I ended up being hired um, by a nonprofit organization and created a humane education program and started going into schools in the greater Philadelphia area and eventually was reaching about 10,000 students a year. And Everywhere I went, the students would start clubs and they would have, I would do after school programs and assembly programs and classroom presentations. And these kids, would, you know, they formed a Philadelphia area wide student group and they were just doing incredible things. And I realized this has to spread. And so in 1996, I co-founded the Institute for Humane Education, primarily to help teachers integrate real world issues, not only about animal and environmental issues, but also human rights and social justice issues and change making 
into their curriculum. And we created the first graduate programs in humane education. They're now offered online through an affiliation with Antioch University. We have an EDD program. We have an MMED program, an MA program, and a graduate certificate. And that's producing the leaders of the solutionary-focused humane education movement. And we'll get into that word solutionary soon, I'm sure. Um, and so that's how I got on this path. And now we are working with teachers uh, on, on five different continents, 12 different countries. Schools are bringing our work into their classrooms. Teachers all over the world are doing this. And, and we're seeing this humane education movement begin to take hold and young people learn how to be what we call solutionaries. I love it. Thank you for for sharing that. And as you were sharing your journey, I I can't help but feel like your your life story embodies the work of being a solutionary. And as you were going through, I kept thinking like as you were making these different decisions on what it is you wanted to do or what you were curious about in, in, in that stage of your life, it reminds me so much of this work, right? Like here is this kids are just people in general. Care. We have things that we are interested in, um, in, in some shape or form. And sometimes we, we care about all the things. Maybe we're really passionate about animals. Maybe we're really passionate about, you know, uh, people or treatment or whatever it might be, but giving the space to, to peel back the layers. And in some ways, I feel like that's kind of your life journey was I, I explored this, I, I unpacked that. And now I'm going to go over here. I'm going to explore this and unpack that. And I think that's a lot of the work and, and, it, it's so much of, of, of what we need. And so as you're talking about this work spreading, I, I, I don't know of too many educators that wouldn't want to help their kids be solutionaries. And we can define that here in, in, in just a second. But with that work, um, maybe we should start with what is a solutionary, but then maybe like the part two of that, however you want to tackle this is how are how are people finding ways to weave that into the system? And because the system at large has lots of barriers, it can't be an excuse not to do things. But at the same time, there's also the reality that sometimes there are certain things where our hands are tied a little bit as the educators in the classroom, knowing what we want to do with kids. And so as you're seeing that evolve, I know it's kind of a twofold. I kind of gave you a lot through the process. Maybe we unpack solution there, there a little bit, and then maybe what are some ways in which people are finding ways to play within the confines of the system and still yeah. create opportunity for this real, authentic work where kids are passionate about making change. I've seen it happen time and time again. And when that spark happens, get out of the way because they are dialed in. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's start with defining. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, a solutionary is somebody who is able to identify unsustainable, unjust, and inhumane systems and then transform them so that they do the most good and the least harm for everyone. And by everyone, I mean people, other species, and the environment. And so that they can create solutions with the fewest unintended negative consequences. So that's the actual definition. And it's really, I, I know it's a made up word. Most people, um, when they hear the word, have this intuitive sense of what it must mean. It's not the same as a problem solver. Right. So somebody can solve the problem of how to dam a river or how to blow up a mountaintop for coal removal. 
and they're problem solvers, but they're not, not solutionaries because there's this ethical component to being a solutionary of doing the most good and the least harm for everyone. So how do you integrate this into the classroom? That is what we help teachers do. So we have loads of free resources on our website, humaneeducation.org. And we have a whole section for educators with lots of ideas. There's lesson plans, there's curricula, there are unit plans. Um, we share some of our partners' work where this is being integrated into K-12 and all different subject categories. So you can just go to our website. We have a solutionary guidebook. You can download free of charge and learn how to do this all on your own. So our one of our partners is San Mateo County, California. This is a huge county serving 113,000 students in 26 school districts. And they have been training teacher fellows over the last five or six years. Hundreds of teachers have developed solutionary units for their classrooms, and many of them are available. So if you're an English teacher, you're a uh, social studies teacher, you're a math teacher, if you're doing CTE, career and technical education, San Mateo County has developed all of these units for CTE. So we can connect you through our website to these units and give you those tools. If you want to take a deeper dive and you really want to learn this stuff for yourself and so you can create your own unit for your own context, we have a solutionary micro-credential program and it's short. It confers a micro-credential. If you have any interest in our graduate programs, it even gives you credit for one full course in the graduate program. And through that online micro-credential, you will really explore what it means to be a solutionary yourself and become one. And then you will, it, you will create your own plan and an implementation process for bringing this to your classroom. And it's not, we, we know, okay, let me just pause and say, Thank you, teachers. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You are the heroes of our society as far as I'm concerned. Um, I'm going to just segue a little bit to it. another story I have. So um, when I was in college and I was that dilettante I described before, I was dating a medical student. Remember, I'd gone to college pre-med and, <laughs> and abandoned that path. And then I, for three and a half years, dated a medical student. And one day he said to me that he thought that being a physician was the most noble profession. And I was so irritated by that comment. And I was probably defensive because now I wasn't planning to be a physician. But I also thought it was silly to rate professions based on their nobility. I mean, mm -hmm. who does that? We're not, you know, we don't need to do that. Right. But I did find myself thinking about that comment for decades. And I realized that if pressed to say what I thought was the most noble profession, I would say teaching. And the reason is because there is no other profession that holds the future in its hands. Mm -hmm. And whether the future is going to be just sustainable, peaceful, and humane lies more with teachers than any other professionals. So 
most teachers have gone into this work because they care. They care about children. They care about the future. And it is so easy to feel downtrodden as an educator, particularly now after the pandemic, um, with the pushback, the political polarization and pushback. You know, teachers feel under fire. Uh, administrators feel under fire. And it's so demoralizing. And as we know, many teachers are leaving the profession. And so I would say to anybody listening who is a teacher, not only thank you, but I believe this is why you went into teaching. This is the most important work you can do is bringing issues that young people are passionate about to them and helping them use literacy, numeracy, the scientific method, critical thinking, systems thinking, helping them put all of that together in service of a world that's a little bit kinder, a little bit better. And that serves our children. You know, one more story. Um, about 10 years ago, I was invited to speak, and this was 10 years ago, pre-pandemic, you know, pre some of the intensity of the polarization and conflict we're experiencing. Yeah. And, and I was invited to speak to some middle schoolers uh, in Connecticut. And first I spoke to the fifth and sixth graders and I asked them what they thought were the biggest problems in the world. And their answers filled up a whiteboard. And one boy even said sex trafficking. And he had not been learning about this in school. Like, children, this was 10 years ago, and even then children know about the problems in the world. We cannot keep it from them. And we are also seeing children experiencing more and more anxiety and depression and despair. Well, after that whiteboard was filled, I asked the children to raise their hands if they could imagine us solving the problems they listed on the whiteboard. And of the 45 kids in that room, only five raised their hands. Only five could even imagine us solving those problems. So mm -hmm. I stopped everything and I asked them to close their eyes and I did a guided visualization with them in which I asked them to imagine that they were very old and approaching the end of a very long and well-lived life. And I painted a picture of the world that they lived in. And I, I invited them to imagine themselves sitting on a park bench on a beautiful day and the air was clean and the waterways around them were clean and there hadn't been a war in as long as they could remember. Nobody went to bed hungry because they had no choice. We'd learned to treat each other and other species with respect and compassion. And even though it wasn't a perfect world, it was a really good world. And then I asked them to a picture, a child coming up and joining them on the park bench. And the child had been learning history in school and learning about much darker times. And the child wanted to know how everything changed for the better. And the child had all sorts of questions. And so I asked them to answer the child's questions in their imagination. And then the child asks a final question. What role did you play in helping to bring about this better world? What mm. did you do? Mm. And I asked them to imagine what they would say to that child. And while they still had their eyes closed, I asked them to raise their hands if now they could imagine us solving the problems they'd listed on the whiteboard. And this time, 40 hands went up in the air. So it, it hadn't taken long, and it hadn't been difficult to transform that hopelessness into hope. What it took was being able to visualize a better world and know that they were part of creating it. 
Now, not all kids experience that sense of hopelessness that they started off with. Um, a couple of years later, I was visiting a school in Guadalajara, Mexico. And when I got there, they said, hey, will you talk to the fifth graders? So I walked in and I hadn't, I wasn't really prepared. So I just said, hey, how many of you think that we can solve the problems in the world? And every hand just flew up in the air. So what was different was that their teacher had been teaching them about environmental problems specifically and in age appropriate ways and had been engaging them and solving them. And so they, even their own school had set up solar panels, set up a composting system, replaced um, disposable water bottles with refillable water bottles with big jugs. They knew problems could be solved because they've been doing it. And so this is a long way of saying that kids already know what's happening. They're already feeling anxiety and we do them a disservice if we don't, again, in age-appropriate ways, teach them about issues in the world, allow them to pursue what they care about, and apply academic skills to solving them. And, and it's such a win when we do the reverse, when we actually do that. It's a win for the kids. It's a win for teachers and schools. It's a win for our communities and world. Yeah. And as you and like to add on to that too, like I I see that stress and anxiety. My wife's an educator and I'm in lots of classrooms and you can, you can feel that. And I think when we can empower students to take action and to, to tangibly make a difference in whatever shape or form that is for the age appropriateness of the kids, some of that anxiety goes away because we're building confidence and self-awareness and things of that nature versus kind of compartmentalizing it, saying we're going to do all these things here. And not that people are intentionally going, we don't care about that, but like it, it allows them to feel like they've got a say and, and, and some control as we work through these things. I think there, there, there's real value in that. And I mean, just, I was just in a, a planning meeting today, working with a class, we're looking at tackling uh, food insecurity as a topic. Um, and we're looking at global voices, national voices, and then we're going to move into like, what can we do locally? Because we want them to see that these issues are everywhere around the world. And they're also in our backyard. And sometimes I think we forget that those issues literally are in our own communities too, um, in, in, in some areas where, where I work. And just the conversation that kids are happening as we started to dissect hunger and food insecurity and is hunger good or bad? Is that an emotion? Is that a state of being? And then what what happens if I'm eating rice every day? I'm not hungry, but I also am not having a well-balanced diet. So now we're learning new words and they didn't have the word yesterday. They're going to have it at the time of this recording. We're going to get into this concept of, of malnourishment. And now it's, and these kids are just, you can't get them to stop. Um, and so they just keep learning more about things and then eventually they we will move into like okay so what are we going to do what 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 tangibly can we do and then start to work that way um and so i i see this stuff happen time and time again and it's it's literally a transformation not just with students i would also take it to the next level to the families um because time and time again we hear feedback from parents and family members going, we never hear what's going on in school. And whatever you're doing, 
they talk about it every single day. That's to me, the action and the agency is powerful, but the aha is when kids are going home and talking voluntarily about what they're doing and why it matters. To me, that's when we ring the bell and go, we've got something here because now the parents are excited or the grandparents or whatever the family dynamic might be. They want to be involved. And all of a sudden they're like, well, hey, I know. And now all of a sudden this this kind of grassroots movement in whatever shape or form is starts to get involved. And it's it's, it's just natural. Um, and it's exciting to watch it happen um, and experience it time and time again in multiple classrooms. You know, and I think it comes back to that empowering them for them to believe just as you shared that they can make a difference and it's it's how we frame it and providing those those uh, opportunities for the educators and the school and the students involved to have that permission to uh give it a go exactly and that was beautifully said and inter- I, I i love that you brought up food insecurity as an example because this is one of those food is one of those areas where Everything comes together, the impact on our health, the impact of um, inequities and injustice, the impact on our environment, the impact on other species. Um, And so this is such a perfect example for really exploring the solutionary framework. So for a solution to be solutionary in, in our framework, yeah. The solution has to address the root and systemic root and or systemic causes of the problem and solve it in a way that does the most good and the least harm for people, animals, and the environment. So if we want to address a problem or if kids want to address a problem like food insecurity, so um, a typical way that that is addressed in school is that you have um, a food drive and you get kids to bring in food. And that is a humanitarian act that is wonderful to do. We should all do it. It's not a solutionary act because it doesn't solve the problems of food insecurity and hunger and poverty. Um, it it just, it it's a good Band-Aid, but it has to be a Band-Aid every single day of every single year until we solve the problem. So if we want to look at the root and systemic causes, and then we come up with ideas of how we're going to actually address this problem, then, you know, we may have all different kinds of ideas, but if it's going to be solutionary, we have to come up with ideas that are also going to be good for the environment and other species. So if what, if our ideas include ways to ensure that more people have access to animal-based foods, for example, those animal-based foods, chances are they're going to come through um, processes that are despoiling the environment, causing ocean dead zones, using massive quantities of resources like water and fertilizer and oil and pesticides, and going to be complicit in really tremendous animal cruelty. So how can we solve this problem of food insecurity, looking at root and systemic causes in ways that ensure that people have healthy, nutritious food that is not doing those things, that is really nurturing the environment and not causing suffering to other species. And that is the beauty of solutionary thinking. And it's 
it's a rare kind of thinking, frankly, because we tend to compartmentalize what it is we are trying to solve. And the solutionary approach, it begins with teaching critical thinking so that we really can understand and be good investigators and, and learn to um, reflect upon what is potentially misinformation, disinformation, and and understand how we can find factual information. And then we move into systems thinking. So we get to understand the complexities, um, where all of these overlapping food systems, economic systems, political systems, legal systems, ecosystems all interact so that we can come up with solutions using strategic thinking and then ultimately creative thinking to say, okay, understand all this. What are my strategic creative ideas for solving this problems in ways that are good for everyone? And that's one of the, my biggest ahas. I feel like I haven't been doing solutionary work my whole career. That would be a full lie, but trying to develop authentic learning experiences, um, regardless of if I was in the classroom, supporting classrooms, coaching, whatever the role might be, um, working through that. And your work that has really, really pushed my thinking to deeper levels in terms of helping frame the learning environments and spaces to be more solutionary, which I love, is considering, I call it like the cause and effect. So we can come up with a solution, right? We can be a problem solver, I think is how you phrased it earlier. And it might be a great idea. And oftentimes, if we got to that point in, in a lot of classrooms, that was considered a success. Now, in my brain and where we're trying to get to in the work now is like, that's almost like a, a midpoint check. Mm -hmm. Because now it becomes, okay, but what about this idea do we need to consider when we think about all the things you just talked about, animals and climate and waste and this and that and the other. And that is where the real power is. And even to go back to this food insecurity project that we're in the middle of processing, we had this really, really powerful moment that was not planned. We were going to zoom in uh, with a friend of mine um, who is a director for a school and community for refugee camp in, in Africa. And we've done some, he's phenomenal with what he's been able to get going there. And we had a call for our kind of global perspective to kind of wrap our head around definitions and perceptions of food insecurity. When we get ready for the call, long story short, he doesn't show. I get a message. Uh, there's no electricity. Mm. Well, the whole region had lost power. And there's lots of reasons why electricity goes off the grid in this area. And some are just maintenance and some are politics and everything else that goes on that you know, not everyone, we don't always understand here in America. And so the kids were obviously bummed, but we went back and having this conversation and it started to connect these dots, right? Like we're talking food insecurity. We haven't thought about electricity with this. We haven't thought about clean water with this. We haven't thought about, and did, 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 did. So while it was unfortunate and everything is good and we're going to have a second chance to, to continue to learn more, it, opened up our eyes to what should we consider? How do we think through this? And to me, there's so much to the work that is so powerful, but I would say like in my current state of, of learning is now reframing, like not just 
problem solver, like that's just the start to then really consider this next step to being a solutionary, which I find so valuable and, and so appreciative that that's why I, I said earlier, I wish I would have found your work much earlier because I, I would have got to this point and be able to help support others. And so that part is, is beautiful. And I think even in your book too, you've got that uh, quote from Henry David Thoreau that says uh, there are a thousand uh, hacking at the branches of evil to one who is striking at the root. And so many times we're putting out all the little fires. Are we really getting to what you said earlier, like the, the root causes of the issues um, to really, really come up with that solution and, and, and truly make a change? Yes. And I, I'm so glad you brought that up. And um, interestingly, we have started working with some teachers at a refugee camp in Kenya to bring the solutionary framework to their students. And they're going to be reaching 104 students this year. And, you know, I think about the power of educating children in a refugee camp to be solutionaries. If anybody needs to be a solutionary, like there's all the problems in the world, but but we need to educate people to be solutionaries for themselves as well. Yes. You know, I, I, the experience of these people in these refugee camps is something unimaginable to me who has grown up so privileged in the United States. And the, the ability to be able to learn how to be a solutionary there means so much to me because I don't want this solutionary learning to be the learning of, you know, the privileged in the United States. I mean, where it can be most easily adopted is in private schools in the U.S. that are not required to follow state curricula and you know, there's there's different pressures, but they're easier. You could, you yeah. know, easily imagine that uh, at Andover or Exeter, they could bring in solutionary learning in a deep way. And that would be great. I hope that happens. I'd, I'd be all on board to help that happen. And yet I want this work everywhere and I want it to serve those who need it most. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, even as you're talking through that, I think about just my ongoing relationship with uh, my friend who's, who's over there and I'm glad I'm able to call him a friend through our interactions. And that's what I find so powerful. We've, one of our guideposts is, you know, trying to figure out some people disagree with the framing of this, but like, we want, we, we want to develop empathy, not sympathy. Um, you know, they're not looking for handouts. They don't want just money thrown at them. They don't want like, oh, look at uh, that's not that's not why we're having these dynamics and conversations. It's it's about empowerment and education. And I remember several years back we did some work with them and we were able to learn about water, the power of water, and they were able to finally get a well and just understanding that process. And now they are growing their own food and like the, the kids and the, the people are learning, you know, and, and we were learning, like we, we learned just as much because we didn't know how to do any of that stuff and just looking at our things. And to me, that, that dynamic, that relation and um, is just so, so powerful. Um, it's yeah. something that, you know, you can't, you can't fake it. Uh, it's, it's there, it's in the moment and just, seeing each other talking to each other and 
recorded voices and, and hearing, you know, that, man, we are, we have so much in common, even though we might have vastly different life experiences, unfortunately, uh, but we might have some similar things as well in terms of how we're processing and dealing with things. It's just, uh, it brings that humane side to the learning uh, besides like, we're just doing this because a teacher says we need to do something like you, you once it just, that goes away so fast and kids don't feel that they feel the complete opposite of like, we need, we need to do something and we can. And so what's that going to look like for us in our stage or age and whether we're doing that locally or whatever it might be like that, that's the beauty of it. But just understanding how do we pop our own little local filter bubble of what all we just know here in our little community to understand all the things to be able to, to, to do some work. Yep. So, Zoe, I want to be respectful of your time because I could literally talk to you all day long and we barely even talked about your book. We talked about your work and I know in the show notes, I will put links to everything in the show notes to the Institute for Humane Education and the book and your TED talk and all that good stuff so they can see that. Um, I highly, highly encourage everyone to look at that Solutionary, Solutionary Educator Guidebook. Just like you said earlier, there's everything you need to get going and thinking and processing and gosh, just the amount of resources on there that are free is phenomenal and incredible and all the good stuff is there for people to to, to check out. But I want to end um, with making sure that if there's anything that you want to share that we didn't get a chance to in our time together, um, is there something that you want to make sure um, you're able to share in case we, we we left something out? I want to make sure I give you space to to share any any final thoughts before we wrap up. I don't I don't think there's anything. I just want to reinforce that um, we are here to help. And um, we love working with individual teachers and we love working with groups of teachers in a school and a whole school or a whole district even more. Because if listeners can have their whole department or their whole school get on board with this, that whole your whole school becomes transformed. Then you have the support of your administrators, the support of anything multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary that's happening with other teachers. So if you're all alone out there, we're here for you. And if you have a few other teachers you could work with, bring them bring them along. Let, let, let us help you transform your school because it's those transformed schools that create transformed communities transformed districts, transformed states, and a transformed nation and ultimately world. I love it. I thank you. I appreciate you uh, for sharing that. And I, I know, I know people who listen to this show that they will be uh, considering and processing through how to make some of that stuff happen. So um, I appreciate you uh, making sure that offer is there and they know um, that it's available. And so, so Truly, truly, from my heart, thank you for taking time to speak with me. This is uh, such a bright spot in my life to be able to connect with someone like you um, after diving into your work and continue to learn from the work on a daily basis as I try to figure out how to be better at the craft as we all are and constantly learning and evolving. Um, the work has had a huge impact on me to further consider 
perspectives and how to be a solutionary and, and how to bring these experiences to to more students and, and young people as well as the educators that, that can have that huge impact in their classroom. And so I, I truly, truly, truly um, can't thank you enough for uh, making time to have this conversation with me. It is definitely a huge highlight um, in my in my career and journey. And this has been just a, such a wonderful delight to uh, hear your stories and and, and and hear from you today. Well, Aaron, thank you so much because hearing what you just said, you know, that just makes my week. Thank you. Good. Thank you so much. And uh, really appreciate your time. All right. You take care. Woke up at six o'clock in the morning, chilling with coffee mugs, me and coffee chugs, talking education all across the nation, pushing boundaries, thinking innovation. Chaos.